Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, former Prime Minister John Turner passes away at the age of 91. A woman is arrested at the Peace Bridge in connection with a letter of ricin that was sent to the White House. And the federal government has accepted a Made in Ontario Emissions Performance Standards program. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. While you hear this, I'm at school eating lunch in my bubble. Sounds like a Netflix series. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I guess in the spirit of the Emmys last night, I'm not sure. Some news over the weekend. Former Prime Minister John Turner has passed away at the age of 91. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, uh, lots and lots of memories there. Uh, I actually remember meeting John Turner once. Uh, oddly enough, it was at uh, uh, an event with Jeb Bush where he was speaking and John Turner was there. Uh, anyway, uh, Canada's 17th Prime Minister passing away at the age of 91. Here's what Global's Ross Lord had to say. 1962, the future looked bright for John Turner. Lester Pearson made him a cabinet minister, and in 1968, just six years after entering politics, a young Turner ran for the Liberal leadership. But he came up short, defeated by an even more charismatic politician, Pierre Trudeau. Turner served as justice and finance minister under Trudeau, but in 1975, he shocked Canadians by resigning. Amidst rumors, he got tired of butting heads with Trudeau. In 1984, Pierre Trudeau quit and Turner assumed the role of prodigal son, returning to assume the leadership of the Liberal Party. 1,862. At the convention, Turner beat Jean Chrétien, was sworn in as Prime Minister, and almost immediately called an election. That campaign saw Turner on the receiving end of one of the most definitive knockout punches of Canadian politics. Before resigning, Pierre Trudeau made 200 patronage appointments, and Turner had to defend them when he debated Conservative leader Brian Mulroney. Soon after, Turner resigned as Liberal leader, staying on as an MP until 1993. Ross Lord, Global News. Let's bring in David Collinette, Senior Counselor, uh, Hill Knowlton Strategies, also served in caucus with John Turner in the 70s as Minister of Multiculturalism, uh, Multiculturalism and in his cabinet as National Director of the Liberal Party when he was leader as the opposition. Also had served under uh, Pierre Trudeau and Jean Chrétien. Let's uh, bring David Collinette in now. David, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, Scott, it's a beautiful day today, and it's, uh, it, it's sad to, uh, to actually talk about someone passing on, on such a lovely day. Uh, you know, thinking of the experience that you have in politics over the years, uh, what stands out when you think of John Turner? Well, John was very much of the British parliamentary tradition, the Westminster model. He really uh, believed in uh, parliamentary democracy, uh, the system that governs us. And um, I, I think that uh, his, uh, the standards that he kept uh, were always ones of the, in the best tradition of uh, parliamentary democracy. Unfortunately, when uh, he returned to politics uh, in 1984, uh, a lot of changed in Parliament, uh, and it made it difficult for those of us who had come into Parliament uh, in the 70s 
because uh, television and then a different kind of uh, media uh, sort of uh, analysis, uh, all of that had changed. And I think he found it very difficult uh, to adapt to. And also the collegiality that uh, was always a part of parliamentary life uh, started to dissipate. And it started to dissipate, as I say, because of television and uh, social changes in the country, but also because the rules in the House of Commons were changed and, uh, you know, night sittings were eliminated. And so people didn't have the time to socialize after votes. Uh, so that, that really, I think, uh, something that, that disappointed him. You you talk of an interesting period, and, and one of my questions I had written down, and I'll ask it now, was c- comparing politics to that era, the 70s and, and even today. What stands out as, as it's the same, it's the same old game, this is completely different as it was back then? Well, I think it's everything is instantaneous now with Twitter, with Facebook, uh, with the 24-hour news, uh, the global community. I mean, we're, we're, we're all tied together as a global community. And I think the pace is much more difficult uh, and much different than it was back in, in those times. Um, look, I've been out of politics now for 18 years, and uh, I sh- certainly would find it difficult to, uh, you know, to, to accept the, the modern uh, devices that have come into the fore. And I think that that was something that uh, I, I think surprised John, and uh, it, was, uh, it was difficult for him uh, when he was leader of the opposition. But he grew back into the job. I mean, he, he was quite an effective opposition as you know, and uh, led uh, the opposition to the free trade agreement in the 1988 election. And so uh, he did adapt, but I think that he was always rather wistful uh, for another time. And whenever he spoke, uh, you know, in his retirement years, he always uh, harpered back to the independence of backbenchers. Uh, the, the, the people are elected uh, to have representatives that actually just don't go along with the party mantra but actually bring their own views and their constituents' views to the fore. And uh, that is certainly not the case today where you have uh, very strong central agencies like the prime minister's office. And a lot of that started back in Pierre Trudeau's time. And and I saw it develop in the years uh, that I was in cabinet for Trudeau and Turner briefly, of course, uh, and then with uh, Jean Chrétien for 10 years. And so uh, politics has changed, and I I think that he found that – uh, not in the best uh, parliamentary uh, sort of tra- historical tradition. Was he uncomfortable on camera, or was it just that different style? Well, he had a certain uh, speaking style that could be very effective uh, with audiences, and I, I think people um, really listened to him because they knew he was he had conviction. Uh, people didn't always share his convictions, but they knew that he spoke passionately and he believed uh, in the principles that he was articulating. Um, on, on television interviews, he had a more of an older style, uh, sort of uh, halting kind of uh, way of, of speaking uh, that perhaps uh, was different. Uh, but, you know, uh, every leader has their style. And I think that he showed, certainly after he came back, that, um, as I said before, he, he could really adapt. Was he an effective leader? Well, he was, uh, he, I think you have to look at his, his entire political career. I think that uh, he achieved a lot uh, as Minister of Justice, Consumer and Corporate Affairs, 
uh, Minister of Finance. Um, and, you know, there, there were significant reforms. And he was involved in the business community and he was involved in other social concerns. When he came back, um, it was very difficult because uh, we had been in power basically for 16 years with Pierre Trudeau. Uh, the public were, you know, aching for a change. And that's what happens in democracy. So the timing wasn't the best. And um, uh, he was dealt with a, a lot of difficult internal issues to grapple with. And, uh, and of course, uh, the 1984 election uh, was not, uh, and one that I went down to defeat him, uh, was, you know, not his finest hour. Uh, but uh, he showed resilience and came back. And in 1988, you know, for uh, a short period of time after the, the debate in 1988, when he had Brian Mulroney really on the defensive, right. uh, I thought the Liberals would actually win the election. Um, and, um, you know, others can talk about why that didn't happen. The liberal support fell off in the last uh, week or so. But the fact is that um, he brought the, the party back from the 40 seats in 1984 to well over 80 seats and uh, established, in, in effect, um, a, a good base that when Jean Chrétien and I went back into Parliament with Chrétien in 1993, uh, we had a good base uh, to draw on. So I think he can he can take some uh, comfort from uh, the, the hard work he did. Uh, I saw him uh, as national director of the party after the defeat. He had, I was there for two years. It was a very rancorous period of it. There was a lot of division and there was a leadership review, but he came out of it uh, with uh, more than three quarters of support. Uh, and, um, you know, but there were still some rumblings and it was difficult for him to uh, to overcome all of that. But I think in the circumstances, uh, you know, he, he acquitted himself very well. And I think people should, uh, you know, should be proud of people who go into public office. It's a bruising game. Uh, John Turner took a lot of bruises. Uh, Pierre Trudeau did. Jean Chrétien, Brian Mulroney, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau, Stephen Harper. Uh, that's part of uh, our system, and we have to accept that. You've worked with uh, some some legendary, incredible people. What's one? Give us a favorite scenario. I mean, can you pick a favorite leader between Pierre Trudeau, Jean Chrétien, John Turner? I mean, everybody's different. Uh, do you have a favorite? Well, they 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 all had various strengths. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm so old. When I get, went into Parliament in 1974, John Diefenbaker was still sitting in the back bench, mm. in the front benches, the former Prime Minister, and Tommy Douglas was in the house. Uh, those were exceptional times. Um, you know, I supported Pierre Trudeau at the 68 convention. I was a, a you know a delegate or an alternate delegate from York University, and uh, and I decided to support Pierre. Um, and so he had a, a, a seminal influence on my life. Uh, and the same way Jean Chrétien, I, who I did support over John Turner in 1984, uh, you know, had uh, a similar effect. It was because of the longevity. We got to know them better, and I, I worked with them longer. Uh, so obviously, um, you know, they had a profound impact on, on my career in life. But uh, I also worked with John Turner, and, uh, you know, today we're remembering him and his great contributions to Canadian political life. And uh, I, I think people should be um, proud of, uh, of, of what he accomplished. Uh, you know, he, he, he had it tough early on. Uh, his mother was widowed. Uh, he, uh, she was, a, you know, a, a single mom. 
Uh, and it wasn't until she remarried and then uh, gained a better sort of economic status. And I, I think that that always uh, was remembered by John. He was very compassionate and uh, he felt uh, he had a feeling for the downtrodden, even though he was associated with uh, in people's minds with Bay Street. Uh, he, he did have, a, have an empathy with the ordinary men and women of the country. And I, I think often that's forgotten. We seem to live in a very divisive world right now. You're either on this team or that team, on that extreme or the other extreme. Uh, how do we, will a COVID-19 pandemic bring us together? How, uh, where's the leader that will unite everybody? Well, it's ironic that you, you make that, that, that statement, and I think it's, it's very true, because we've talked to a lot of um, friends and, uh, and others and family, and what has happened with COVID is it's actually brought people together. It's mm-hmm. brought friends together. Uh, it's brought families together. And, you know, the Liberal Party, uh, like other political parties, is, is a family. And there are lots of family feuds uh, uh, over the years. And, and John, John Turner had to deal with that. Um, and I think what COVID has done is, is it's forced people, families, to actually stick together and get to know each other, to love each other. And um, I think that there's some good that will come out of it, despite uh, the tragedy. Do you think we're heading for a smaller world in some way? And obviously in a technological world, you can't say that, but certainly, uh, people evaluating what's important, less fashionable politics, more serving politics. Yes. I think that, uh, you know, 20 years from now, people will look back as, as a, this is a watershed moment. Uh, you know, we've been on almost like a, uh, honestly, a helter skelter, but on, on a on a fast train ride uh, with modern technology, economic success. Um, but a lot of people have been left behind, and I think that what COVID is doing, and uh, even in the United States, where the federal government has become very involved in the economy, cushioning the blows, not as haven't done as good a job as we have here, and I think our government uh, nationally and all the provincial governments have really done well. I, I think that uh, we are realizing that uh, too many people have been left behind on the economic front over the last 30, 40 years, and I think this is, there's going to be a, a, a new cycle, a new cycle of government intervention, of support for the most marginalized in society and a real attempt to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to succeed. Uh, Last question, David. Uh, Do you think this is going to change the throne speech? Do you think September 23rd, the speech has changed considering we're, we're seeing cases tick up again? Well, I, I, from what I gather from my uh, liberal friends, uh, the prime minister wants uh, to use this particular challenge to to try to make some seminal changes to the way uh, you know we govern the country and to bring in a more equitable uh, arrangement a socioeconomic arrangement for Canadians and um, you know I wouldn't be surprised to see a child care, national child care program instituted modeled on Quebec uh, obviously that's it within provincial responsibility, but the federal government does have the money. And uh, as the same with Medicare in the 60s, you know, you can use the power of the federal purse uh, to, to bring in national programs. So there's talk of PharmaCare. Uh, so I, I think that there will be a, in this throne speech, what I'm looking forward to is um, a real 
change of direction where government is going to become more implicated uh, in the lives and well-being and, and opportunities uh, for individual Canadians. David Collinette has been with us, Senior Counselor Hill Knowlton Strategies, has also served with uh, John Turner in the 70s as Minister of Multiculturalism and in his cabinet as National Director of the Liberal Party, also serving with Pierre Trudeau and Jean Chrétien as we celebrate the life of John uh, Turner, who passed away this weekend at the age of 91. David, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bizarre story uh, coming out of uh, the border. A woman arrested at the Peace Bridge in connection with a letter of ricin that was sent to the White House. Uh, And then now we're seeing breaking news coming out of Montreal in regard to this. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, I'm not opening up any mysterious envelopes. This is a very bizarre story. Uh, What do we know here? Well, uh, it's still an evolving story. What we do know is that um, I think the most important thing, well, let's start with this. The most important thing is nobody got hurt. Uh, The most important thing from uh, my point of view as a political scientist and, you know, geostrategist is that uh, the effort to counter terrorism is very effective that this was caught very very quickly from when the first report came in that there was a threat and that it showed the international cooperation that is cooperation between canada and the u.s on terrorism related activities is functioning very well and that's good news Uh, what do we know about uh this person that was trying to get across the border uh and their affiliation with anybody anyone of interest well, perhaps the breaking news uh, out of Montreal will add to this, but what we do know so far is that a woman has been identified as having sent an envelope, and uh, apparently from Canada, the RCMP was contacted by the FBI saying, can you help us? And the answer was yes. She was captured at the border. It's a tad unclear as to which side of the border she was on, but it looks like she was trying to leave Canada and go into the U.S. She apparently is a U.S. citizen. She apparently was carrying a weapon, a gun, at the time of her arrest. We don't at this minute, uh, at least I don't at this minute, have any um, information about her ideology or why she would do this. The fact that it was also sent to Susan Collins' husband suggests there may be some kind of a... uh, uh, an animus against Republicans, in which case this will play almost immediately into U.S. politics. Uh, how is this playing in the U.S.? Will this get traction down there, or is there just so much else going on? Well, it certainly can be picked up as part of a broader um, a broader paradigm by Donald Trump that people are out to get him, that only strong law and order can really keep people safe and that ultimately only he stands between between the people and chaos and uh, anarchy. We have another story coming that would link this uh, to to that particular message. Susan Collins is in a very tight race right now. Her seat is threatened. She's extremely likable in Maine, but she's taken political positions recently that is causing um, a challenger to have a real chance to unseat her a speaker of the the house there, a Democrat, uh, because she, Susan Collins supported uh, the Kavanaugh nomination, and that takes us into the big story of the day. 
Hmm. But also she uh, supported, she voted uh, on the impeachment issue uh, in favor of, you know, with all the other Republicans. So she is in political trouble. This may have perhaps some sympathy votes helping her in her reelection. But the main thing is her husband wasn't injured. Um, does it matter if, and I, as you said, I don't think we know this as yet, although it is expected that this is a U- U.S. citizen, that's how they got into the U.S., uh, I guess, uh, a little bit more easily. But uh, does it matter if this is a, a citizen from the United States or Canada? Well, yes, it matters uh, in terms of the laws that are going to be used. Yeah. It matters to the which court she appears in, uh, because she will appear in court to, to prove her innocence or guilt. But she also, uh, being an American, um, but coming out of Canada, had it been a Canadian citizen, and for all we know it might still be, we might be back to an era not long ago that you might remember, I think many people will remember, there's a song about it, Blame Canada. So Canada, mm-hmm. if uh, it's shown to have porous borders for terrorism, could factor again into U.S. reckoning on security, but also into the U.S. political election. What do you? What are your thoughts about the method that's being used here, and and, and what does this tell us? Yes, I think it's interesting. We should remember that uh, ricin is apparently fairly easy to make. It was not that long ago that a Bulgarian dissident named Markov uh, was assassinated by a ricin pellet injected into his leg in London from an umbrella that was spring-loaded uh, as a murder weapon. And that that uh, sounds like something out of a James Bond movie. It, it does. It does. And and the and the fact that this this was linked for, back to the KGB uh, because the technical assistance might have been given to the Bulgarian secret police. Uh, all of that is is part of recent history. So where does this go? What what do you think we will find here? Uh, is this isolated incident? Is this an isolated incident? Is this someone just unhappy with with the White House, or is this terrorism related? All this is uh, yet to be unfolded. We don't know, but as we know, the web permits niche communities to form. Uh, this person could be part of any number of types of groups. Uh, or might just be an individual who, for some reason, has a grudge or just wants to draw attention to herself. And remember, this, she's innocent until proven guilty. We, we have no facts at this moment. But what we have is an indication that there was an attempted attack. Uh, by the way, it also shows that the U.S. system for protecting its president is pretty good because it was caught, although it went through two or three rounds, apparently, the final round of examination before being sent on to the White House. Uh, for the opening of this envelope, but it shows that that system is effective. We just don't have enough facts to speculate uh, beyond that. Uh, do you think we will know more or learn more about this, or is this one of those things that it'll be hush-hush in, in, until a charge is laid or or, uh, or other avenue is taken? Well, again, it remains to be seen. I suspect we're going to know a lot more in the very uh, near future of some of the basic facts about uh, her background, who she is, what's her social media show in terms of her uh, predilections and is she is she part of a broader group or not? I suspect we'll know a lot uh, a lot in the near future, but that remains to be seen. Can't let you go, Elliot, without asking you your thoughts on the uh, passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what this means. More importantly, that spot on the Supreme Court and in the juggling we're already seeing. I think the uh, I think the main conclusion and it's one that I think you and I have been talking about a bit is that this election isn't over that uh, the notion that the polls, which have been remarkably stable, despite all the turmoil, 
uh, for quite some time, showing that there's a national lead for Joe Biden, a kind of glide path to election, that the state polls are coming in, much better state polls are just being announced today and yesterday, showing indeed that the the battleground states are um, showing a Biden lead, a fairly comfortable lead, although there's some toss-up states. And now in the middle of all this, we have the question of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and the very first thing to say about that, Scott, is that a transformational American has died. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge loss, and it, and it allows everybody to look at her contributions, which have been uh, so significant. Her main contributions uh, justifiably are being um, pointed to as being her role in, in equality of women, but she was also on all kinds of fronts uh, leading the le- legal and, uh, battle uh, for positive, progressive, what those of us who study India would call pro-people uh, decisions. So she has been a, a major force, and she's a loss in that regard. What it will do now to the election, uh, this is a matter of anybody can speculate. I, I think that the speculation so far is that it's really going to animate the the Democratic base. No question about it. Uh, there, the hundreds, millions now, uh, a lot of money has poured into the Democratic coffers immediately, within an hour. Uh, there was $100,000 a minute being brought to the Democrats mm. to help uh, fight the possibility that Donald Trump will go ahead and make this appointment and and uh, the Republicans will have no shame at all, including Lindsey Graham reversing themselves. So I think that's possible. The the two things that, um, if we can stand back from a, a half a step, a quarter step, is that uh, Donald Trump really becomes uh, expendable. Uh, his he he becomes um, gee thanks uh, gee thanks Don that was that was really great. As soon as mm. this person and it's going to be a woman is confirmed, he is redundant because he will have fulfilled his role in appointing judges which are, mm. you know, conservative and, and uh, therefore, uh, will there be a slice, we don't know how, how big a slice, will a slice of people who back Donald Trump today say, well, that was great, uh, I, I'm going to definitely vote, you know, unless it's raining, or unless I listen to my kids who've been hollering mm. at me about supporting somebody who tears babies from their mother's arms and, and all the other things what you could point to. Um, had this been, you know, we can now wait and we'll just see, uh, mm. we'll, uh, yeah. in, order to, in order to make this appointment, you've got to reelect me. Now they don't have to, if this goes ahead. And that's a big if. Uh, it does, I think the, the, the second and final point is almost... Really quickly, it's going, to, it's going to go ahead and I think the democratic uh, process in America is going to be affected for generations mm. by this six to three appointment. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Well, you're very welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the federal government has accepted a Made in Ontario Emissions Performance Standards Program, but what does that mean for everyday Ontarians? Jeff Yurick is with us, Minister of the Environment, Conservation and Parks, and is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thanks very much for having me on the show. So explain to everybody what this is, because, again, uh, we know that uh, that Ottawa and Ontario not necessarily in agreement on, on what the uh, road we should take here. So explain what this all is to people. 
So this is uh, allowing Ontario uh, to uh, impose its emission standards on the heavy polluters in the province, the big industry that are, are producing over 50,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. Uh, right now they fall under a, a federal regulation, so this is allowing us to take the place of it. And, and what's good about it is it allows the industry to reduce their emissions uh, as, as needed, but at the same time, uh, it's an Ontario solution which allows them to remain competitive uh, across the province with the Americans so that we don't lose the jobs or prevent any uh, growth in, in the companies because uh, of, of too stringent of measures. What does this mean as far as the relationship between the province and the feds now? Uh, again, because I think they see things differently. Is this a coming of minds? Is this a coming together? Well, this is, uh, you know, I, I think this is where uh, uh, province and the federal government should be at. Uh, uh, our Made in Ontario Environment Plan wanted to institute uh, uh, emission standards on the heavy polluters in this province and and uh, you know after uh, over a year and a half of work uh, uh, the federal government uh, has, has now uh, okayed the idea because it, it's reached the benchmarks that they put forward uh, that we'd have to attain in order for them to remove the federal uh, component of, of their carbon tax. So again, how does this fit in with the carbon tax? Because we remember uh, way back when, if you didn't jump on with uh, the feds, then uh, or come up with some sort of program that the feds would put one on us. Now that the, what we've got now eliminates that. No, there's still the federal carbon tax on individuals and small and medium uh, and large sized businesses. What this is, this is tackling the big polluters. This is tackling the ones that are, are making substantial amounts of, of carbon emissions uh, in, in our province. And, and our, our uh, program, our, our performance standards that are put in place uh, gives these uh, emitters a, a tough line, but it's fair to lower those emissions. Um, and if they lower them, uh, they avoid paying the price. Um, but it also, uh, it's going to be provincial standards in place. So uh, it's not a national standard, so it will allow them to be more competitive on the marketplace so that they're able to invest in themselves and create jobs. So it's, it's a good win-win situation for Ontarians. We get lower of the big emitters of, of greenhouse gases, but at the same time, we're allowing those industries the availability to stay competitive and create more jobs. Why is this better than the federal plan? Well, the federal plan uh, instituted a... Uh, uh, emissions reductions uh, at the highest level immediately, which uh, uh, is a huge shock to industry, which uh, would uh, lead, especially during uh, the COVID, uh, great strains for them to uh, maintain their com com uh, competitively, com being competitive uh, in the marketplace and creating jobs while taking care of emissions. We, we have a more of a, a gradual phasing in of these emission reductions. We still hit the same targets down the road. And uh, we're using provincial standards. Uh, the, the federal government was using national standards, which even made it tougher on Ontario industries uh, to remain competitive. So, again, we're going to reduce those emissions of the big heavy polluters, but at the same time, balance it out with allowing them to be able to be competitive, keep jobs in Ontario and, and grow. Does Ontario have a different situation because we have a past of being greener? You know, uh, you know, if you look across the provinces uh, and how they've lowered the greenhouse gas emissions uh, since 2005, Ontario is, is one of the leaders. Uh, the eastern provinces, the smaller ones, are, are a little bit ahead of us, but all the other larger-sized provinces were, were far and wide ahead. Uh, you know, we have a, a green electricity system that plays well into it, and we have such a uh, immense uh, uh, 
uh, forest cover in, in throughout Ontario, which creates a great carbon sink. So, I, you know, we are we we are I think leading the charge uh, across this country as uh, uh, leading the environmental charge to have a cleaner environment, cleaner land, water, and air, and and also reducing our carbon emissions. And I think uh, you know the government works with us uh, uh, going further. I think we can achieve even more. Uh, many have been critical of the Conservatives for not uh, being more active on this file. Do you think this will keep critics happy? Well, you know, I, I I think people will say you could do more, and I agree we can always do more. But the fact that we're we're obtaining uh, great uh, benchmarks as we move forward, uh, we have a new uh, emission testing program coming forward for our big trucks uh, we're building subways to reduce the amount of people needing to drive cars on the roads throughout the, the GTHA. Uh, and now we have a emissions performance standard in place for our heavy uh, uh, polluters in the province. So we're, we're coming along. We know we can do more, and, and, uh, and we're going to try to do our best to continue on our path uh, to uh, have a low-carbon economy at the same time, have a prosperous economy uh, so we can balance the two out and ensure Ontario uh, remains a prosperous country uh, province. And how is business reacting to this? You know, uh, the industry that are being affected by this are, are saying thank you. Uh, it gives them some certainty uh, going forward as opposed to waiting to see if our standards would be uh, uh, come forward. And, and I'm also hearing is that uh, they're, they're grateful that we have the phase in uh, of uh, emission reduction so that uh, they're able to plan, move forward at reducing their emissions, but also remaining competitive. So, uh, I, I think this is a great move forward, and I think the businesses will agree. Uh, the federal government has accepted a Made in Ontario Emissions Performance Standard program. Uh, d- does this mean anything for any individual Canadian uh, or any, any individual Ontarian, or is is this good branding? Is this just good branding? Because obviously, uh, like I said, some are, are, con- are critical of the Conservatives uh, on the environment. What your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I think this is great for all Ontarians because there's a program now in place that's Ontario made uh, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions from the big polluters. And and it's also a path forward to ensure that those industries remain competitive so we don't see potential job loss uh, due to lack of competitiveness with the Americans or other uh, other provinces. So, you know, those people working in those industries uh, will will you know, can breathe a sigh of the relief that uh, Ontario is not going to be the reason uh, through their uh, emissions uh, performance uh, uh, for possible uh, uh, contraction of their industry. Hmm. Jeff Yurick has been with us, Minister of the Environment, Conservation and Parks. The federal government has accepted the Made in Ontario Emissions Performance Standard Program. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.